Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. And welcome to our sixth installment on the Iroquois in the American Revolution. This episode we're going to be covering Valley Forge. We're getting to the point in the story where we're actually going to meet George Washington and, and some of the, the characters that you actually think of when you think of the American Revolution. So let's set the picture for you all. It's the autumn of 1777. The Oneida and Tuscarora nations have just helped the Patriots repeal a massive British invasion from General John Burgoyne. At Fort Stanwix? At Fort Stanwix and Saratoga. This war between the brothers, as the Six Nations call it, has divided the Confederacy. It's now in shambles, and this week we're going to talk about how they try and hold it together, and then we're going to catch up and see what George Washington's been up to this past year, because as Caleb said, we really haven't been talking about what he's been doing. First, let's talk about the Six Nations. In the past four months, we've seen an Iroquois civil war break out, with the Mohawks, Seneca, and Cuga on one side, and the Tuscarora and Oneida on the other. That's right, Joseph Brandt has gathered his Mohawk warriors, and he has gone in and actually attacked Oneida villages, killing and capturing people there and burning their village. And then the Oneida and other Iroquois nations have been going to retaliate against the Mohawk. Now, right before Burgoyne's defeat at Saratoga, General Schuyler and the Oneida attempted a peace conference at Onondaga. Schuyler wrote feverish invitations to try and get all the nations to come and try and hammer out their differences because what the Patriots really want is for the Six Nations to stay out of this war so that they don't have to worry about their frontier borders. And on top of just uh, inviting them to come, Andrew, he actually had wampum belts made on three different occasions and sent them with ambassadors to their nations, but he never received any reply back. And he never knew why. But the reason why was this fiery old Palatine woman who had grown up alongside the Mohawk in German flats. Remember, the Palatines are the Germans that the Mohawk allowed to settle there when they went to visit Queen Anne back in 1710. All the way back in our episode on the four Indian kings, uh, so this was several generations past, almost 70 years earlier, they had migrated to this part of the Mohawk Valley. Anyway, this Palatine woman had married, had married a guy named McGinnis, and he was a hero in the French and Indian War, and anyhow, she was a huge loyalist. But when the war broke out, like many other loyalists, she found that her home was robbed, and actually, it was burned with one of her sons still inside. So, to say that she liked the Yankees, that would be a lie. She did not like the Yankees. She hated them. Now, a thing to point out, Andrew, about these Palatines is they actually had much better relations with the Mohawk and the other Indians around them because they were invited there. Throughout uh, all history, we're seeing immigrants come in and push these nations further and further to the west. But because the Germans were invited there, they actually became very close, and a lot of them had almost a family relationship with these Mohawk leaders. And they spoke Mohawk as a second language. Many of them didn't even speak English, but they spoke an old German and a Mohawk tongue as well. Widow McGinnis was one of these people. After the battles, she had fled to Canada, but then she came back down and settled in a Cayuga town with a lot of her other Mohawk friends who had fled as refugees. And when the message arrived from Philip Schuyler, she heard about it and she marched out and grabbed the wampum belts out of the hands of the messengers. And she went to the clan mothers and threw the belts down at their feet and said, bury these things in the ground. So that's why he never got a reply. Meanwhile, back at Onondaga, they waited and waited 
And after three weeks, it became clear that none of the Western nations are coming to Onondaga. And so the Tadadaho there extinguished the fire of the council that was not to be. One of the Onondaga sachems told the Americans that actually we've heard news that the Seneca are traveling south and west and looking to gather people in Pennsylvania and Ohio to gather war parties for next year. Now, Andrew, this is a really big deal because just last year, the Onondaga council fire had been extinguished and this had been going for hundreds and hundreds of years and so they think that we can relight this and it has all this uh, symbolic meaning in doing it but because they can't get three nations these three nations to come they just realize hey this really isn't a real council fire if we just have our allies here if our whole six nations isn't here so they just put the fire back out Meanwhile, I guess depending on which side you're on, protagonist or antagonist, Molly Brant, along with her little brother Joseph, have traveled to the Cayuga Nation for the winter. And also, John Johnson, who's William Johnson's son, he stays with the Seneca in hopes of stirring them up to keep them loyal to the British Alliance. And you may think to yourself, well, Molly Brant's just a Mohawk woman. What kind of saying could she possibly have? Well, you have to remember, even though predominantly we're talking about Native American men in most of our stories, and it seems like they're always at the forefront. That's just because in the historical records, they get written down as the ones exchanging. But remember, all of the Six Nations are still matrilineal cultures, and the women still really do run things. They just tell the sachems and they tell the warlords what to do. Mary Brant is one of those women. Someone wrote that one word from Mary Brant was worth more than a thousand white men. And you may hear that Joseph Brandt was the main person that the British were looking to to lead the Iroquois, but in reality, it's his older sister that's running the show. One of the uh, elected war chiefs was actually Old Smoke, and he had a much higher stature than uh, Joseph Brandt, because Brandt wasn't even a sachem. And Old Smoke, how long have we been talking about this guy, Caleb? Forever? He, He lives... He didn't get the name Old Smoke for nothing. And he still lives for like 40 years after this, so he was Old Smoke even then. Anyway, Old Smoke wants to sue for peace, and he wants to get the Seneca out of the war. But during a mini-council that they have together there with the Seneca and Cayuga, Mary Brant stands up during the council, and she calls out Old Smoke. She begins to put on the tears and sob, and she mentions that we're not staying loyal to the British, and this is going to tarnish the memory and legacy of Sir William, and oh, how he loved the Iroquois people. And Old Smoke is just standing there, and all the... The chiefs and sachems are looking at him and kind of giving him the stink eye. And he feels like he can't do anything. What are you going to say to a to a girl crying who uh, is crying about the memory of her husband? It, it, you can't really chastise her. So he's put in this situation and they all kind of agree to stay loyal to the British. Meanwhile, the Oneida by this time have thrown completely into the Americans. And like Caleb had mentioned last week, they kind of had no choice because at first they were just helping the Americans. But once the Mohawk attacked them, their villages and their people now fear for their lives. So they're actually looking to the Americans to protect them from Mohawk and Seneca raids. And we mentioned last time that they are the first nation to officially declare war and agree to an alliance with the United States. In the early winter of 1777, they received this message from the American Congress. Quote, It rejoices our hearts that we have no reason to reproach you in common with the rest of the Six Nations. We have experienced your love strong as the oak and your fidelity unchanging as truth. You have kept fast hold of the ancient covenant chain and preserved it free from rust and decay 
and bright as silver, like brave men. For glory you despise danger. You stood forth in the cause of your friends and ventured your lives in our battles. While the sun and moon continue to give light to the world, we shall love and respect you as our trusted friends. We shall protect you and shall at times consider your welfare as well as our own. So this is officially sent from the Continental Congress to the Oneida, recognizing all the assistance that they've given against General Burgoyne. Very nice words. But even as these words come in from Congress, the Oneida begin gathering supplies for a humanitarian mission because George Washington's army is in a really bad place. So I suppose we should kind of give a quick overview on what George has been doing all this time and what has caused him to wind up in this very desperate situation that he finds himself in 1777. Yeah, we had mentioned, I think last time we left off, Washington has had to evacuate New York City when the British Armada rolls in with tens of thousands of troops and hundreds of ships into New York Harbor, and Washington just barely makes it out. He does have a great victory in Trenton, New Jersey, and that's the famous day-after-Christmas battle when he comes in and surprises all the Hessian mercenaries. You know, the painting with him on the boat with all the icebergs around him in the river, that one. So that's a great victory. Then later in the spring of 1776, Lord Germain, who's back in Europe running the whole war, is really incompetent, and he never tells General Burgoyne that General Howe, who's currently in New York City, is going to leave Burgoyne hanging. Instead, Howe is going to head south and attack Philadelphia and try to take out Washington, but Germain never told Burgoyne that this was going to happen. He kind of said it both ways, and it was a, a huge kerfuddle, and so Burgoyne was left to hang out and dry and had to surrender his whole army. The whole idea of them changing the campaign around instead of enforcing one another and trying to take Philadelphia really shows the mindset of these European generals. They have it in their head, okay, if we just take the capital, we've conquered them. Yes. And that proves to be the complete opposite because we're going to see George Washington and the civilians, they are just going to constantly have this retreat approach to everything. They're never going to surrender. They're just going to keep falling back. And they are able to get supplies from the country, from people driving their cattle into the swamps and things like that. George Washington, he every year he can replenish his forces. But these British redcoats, they have this set amount of men. So every time they lose a man, that's a man that's going to take a long time to get sent back from Europe. While Washington is hanging out in the wilderness of Pennsylvania and New Jersey and southern New York, he starts getting some influx of people. And one of these persons is a young 19-year-old. I'm going to say his name, Caleb. Are you ready? Yeah. He is Marie-Joseph-Paul Véraud Gilbert Dumontay Marquet de Lafayette. So as we say here in America... You mean the the Marquis de Lafayette. Yes, the Marquis de Lafayette, Lafayette, as they say in the South. Yes, Lafayette. He gets enthralled with the story of American freedom, and so he's actually a very, very rich young man, richer than the King of France with annual income. Wow. Yeah. How is he so rich? He's a Marquis. Yeah, but... His parents died when he was a child, and he was an only child, and he inherited everything. (laughs) So So, he decides to go and help the Americans in their war for some reason. So he shows up, he buys a boat, outfits it with supplies, and sails uh, to the southern colonies, I think to Carolina. 
And he gets off the boat, and then they say, well, Washington's up in Pennsylvania. So he marches up the road the whole way, joins up with Washington, and at first Washington's like, another one? Because the American army had been inundated with these requests from these European people coming over wanting to uh, join the army because it was the really popular thing to do. But they all expected to have these high-ranking generalships and be paid money that befitted their rank. And Washington was totally appalled. Like, we don't have money to pay our own troops. And we don't have generalships to give out. We need to promote our own people. But people said, just listen to this kid. I think you're really going to like him. And he and Washington really hit it off. Within a few days, they're best buds. Their relationship is going to strengthen over time that Washington pretty much considers him his adopted son and Lafayette his adopted father since he grew up without a father. And Lafayette's actually going to name his kid George Washington. But more on Lafayette in a bit. Washington has to deal with all these other battles. Uh, on September 11, 1777, there's the Battle of Brandywine. Lafayette takes a bullet to the leg. I was just going to say, it was more of a, a hip wound or a butt wound. Uh, oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, I think he got shot right right near the butt. But after the Battle of Brandywine was the Battle of Clouds. And this one actually uh, has a little bit more documentation on it because this was kind of like one of those weird act of God battles where uh, George Washington is, he's just retreated from Brandywine and Howe's men are pursuing him and uh, George Washington decides to stand and fight. Then all of a sudden this amazingly strong thunderstorm comes through and the rain is falling so hard that nobody can even walk without sinking in the mud. And it forces the British and the Americans not to fight. George Washington's able to get his men and retreat. And a lot of people say that uh, this shows how incompetent Howe was and, and Lord Cornwallis because they had this opportunity to get them right after Brandywine, but they stopped to bury their men and rest. So in hindsight, that sounds good. It worked out really well because uh, I have a feeling that George Washington's men, after being up for about three days straight between fighting and marching, Andrew, they literally didn't have any time to rest at all. So I feel like they probably wouldn't have done very well at this battle. So they do get a few days rest, and then there's the Battle of Germantown on October 4th, 1777. And the Americans are soundly defeated. They have 152 killed. Over 500 wounded, nearly 440 captured, and the British only lose 71 killed and just 14 missing. Then you have the Battle of Gloucester, the Battle of White Marsh, and Washington's kind of hemmed in. He decides to look for winter quarters, and some of the people are starting to say, what the heck, you're going to winter quarters? He's like, yeah, it's freaking late October. We need to go into winter quarters. The snow's going to be on the ground soon. And they're like, well, what about Philadelphia? We have to defend the capital. Because they had the same mindset as the British. What do we do? Oh no, if our capital's taken. But with a really decentralized government, if Congress flees, there's really no loss. So George Washington, basically, he needs to find a place to winter quarters where he can kind of keep an eye on Philadelphia, but at the same time stay far enough away where he doesn't have to worry about them doing a sneaking attack through the winter like he did the year before. So the British officially capture Philadelphia on September 20th, and General Howe enjoys all the comforts and warmth of the town, and he was not really interested in doing anything else. Washington remarked, Howe didn't take Philadelphia. Philadelphia took Howe because he really is just going to sit there all winter and not do anything. But who would want to? Because the winter was absolutely dreadful and cold. Winters now are not nearly as bad as they were back then because Southern Pennsylvania really doesn't get that bad of winters. Yeah, reading in the history books, I was always amazed. Even in Virginia, they talk about rivers freezing sometimes and things like that. And 
Uh, every time I've been to Virginia in the winter, it's been 60 degrees outside. Anyway, some days feet of snow would fall. Many of the men had no shoes, no blankets, no supplies. Numerous days there was no bread and no meat. Some of the men began to boil old leather shoes to eat. Mmm. Yeah. Washington begged for supplies from Congress, but they're powerless to acquire anything because what can the government give you? Well, he would write for them to send supplies and they would say, okay, but say hypothetically, Congress okays the money. Then they got to track down the money. Then they got to find a shoemaker and offer to pay him. And then he has to find the leather and all the leather's already been eaten. So, uh... (laughs) So uh, they did start rolling a ball and getting them supplies, but it it took months to get it there. And Congress told Washington, look, if you need anything, just go out in the countryside, commandeer, and take it by force if needed. But Washington refuses to do that because he said, if we do that, we'll be no different from the British. Here's something he said. To see these men without clothes to cover their nakedness, without blankets to lie upon, without shoes without a house or hut to cover them until those could be built. And they submitted without a murmur. It's proof of patience and obedience, which, in my opinion, can scarcely be paralleled. And Washington isn't the first person to comment on this. Basically, what he just said was, even though these men had nothing, they didn't complain about it. And he was very impressed with his men. Countless letters show that the men were in good spirits somehow, even though they were freezing cold, even though some were dying, even though some were sick, even though some were deserting, the ones that stayed were very committed to see this thing through. Yeah. If our internet goes out for 20 minutes, we get on our cell phone that has internet and we post on social media how mad we are that the internet's out. We can't even go that long without complaining. But the winter grows worse. They set up camp with 12,000 men And by the end, 2,000 will have died and 4,000 deserted. But that sounds like a lot. They lost half. But I find it more amazing that Washington was able to keep 6,000 there through all that. Well, one thing you have to remember, Andrew, at the time, it was still expected in the military that you would send the men home over the winter. You would basically keep what was called the garrison duty. You'd keep the bare bones of your army for the winter. You'd send everybody else home so that they can, you know, do their own thing. And then they would be expected to come back in the spring. So it says that 4,000 deserted, but most likely, you know, a lot of these people weren't contracted, so they most likely just left. But the thing that really helps Washington's army is they've got nothing to do. And then this character shows up. So ready for a nice name, Caleb? Uh, is this another Frenchie name? No, this is a German name. Oh, okay, let's hear it. Yeah, we have Frederick Wilhelm Ludolf Gerhard Augustin von Stuben. Or as we know him in New York, Steuben. Like Steuben County? Like Steuben County. Okay. But I guess it was pronounced Steuben. I'm just going to say Steuben because that's how we pronounce it here in New York. So don't write us. Steuben came over as a volunteer and he shows up with a letter of introduction from none other than Ben Franklin himself. He is referred to as the Lieutenant General of Frederick, wait for it, Frederick the Great. Wow, impressive. Very impressive. Is it real or is it a load of hooey? Um, it's a slight exaggeration. In reality, he was a captain aide-de-camp. So he did work on Frederick the Great's staff, at least. Yes. But was he a lieutenant general? No. Well, he still probably had more military experience than anybody else there. Yes. And what are Germans? Uh, do you know a lot of Germans, Caleb? 
Uh, personally, yeah. no, I don't. I do. And Germans, even to this day, are known as being very methodical, step-by-step, punctual, and orderly. It, it's just it's the way their culture is. They're very good at organizing things. And if you screw things up, you better conform and get back in line so that the machine runs smoothly. So that's why so many good engineers come from Germany. Oh, yes. Anyway... Stuben comes over kind of with some shady backstory. It's rumored that perhaps he swung for the other team and he was dishonored and that's why he needed to come over. <laughs> Swing for the other team? Yeah. Is that the term? <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was played for the other team. Well, he <laughs> flung and swung and uh, <laughs> spent time in the dugout. Yes, it was rumored that he was a closet homosexual. Okay. <laughs> Because he never married, and he had these young men that he was very close with that hung around him. Was the Lafayette one of them? No, okay. Lafayette was not one of them. <laughs> Lafayette was um, a straight arrow. <laughs> like Lafayette, however, he offers his services for free. And <laughs> <laughs> no fun. Not, <laughs> not like that. <laughs> he offers his military service for free. And Washington, the same thing. He thinks another one of these European guys that I got to give a promotion to. But after he sees how competent Stuben is, he actually makes him his inspector general. And Stuben is a character because not only is he possibly a homosexual, but he shows up and he gets off the boat, Caleb, and he's wearing a full red uniform. And so he's actually almost arrested because they think that he's a British redcoat. He also brings his giant greyhound dog named Azor who is by his side 24-7, and he doesn't speak any English. So, of course, who can you think better to put in charge of training the troops than an angry old German guy? So as he starts becoming the inspector general, he walks around camp and he's talking to the officers and he's examining their equipment and their huts, and he sees that people are just defecating in the paths, and if an animal dies, they'll strip the meat off it and just leave the carcass laying there. So first thing he does is institute sanitation to stop the spread of disease. you got to remember back then, disease was what defeated armies more than battles. So sanitation was more important than training your army how to fight in a lot of ways. And he did simple things like, I don't know, put the latrines not next to the kitchen. <laughs> he put them on total opposite ends of the camp. And then he starts training a group of people because they don't know how to march. They don't know how to go in order. Many of them don't even really know how to load their rifles properly. So he trains a core group of men and calls them the honor guard. And then when he feels that they're competent, he has them go out and become commanders to train the whole rest of the army. Also, nobody's keeping track of supplies. There's no ledgers. There's no books saying how much is coming in and how much is going out. He calls this total administrative incompetence. By the spring, Stuben is officially given the rank of major general, and everybody praises the fact that he gets things so organized and it saves a ton of money for the army. And you may say, well, okay, you guys are supposed to be talking about the Oneida. Why are, why are you talking about this German guy? Well, just the fact that this is what Washington's army's been up to. And also, at the end of the war, at the end of his life, Stuben will retire and move to upstate New York and settle in Oneida country on a small estate outside of Rome, New York. And his grave is there to this day. If you're ever outside of Rome, you can go see his grave. When in Rome, see Stuben's grave. Like the old saying goes. So, Caleb, let's get back to the Oneida. Now, Andrew, in passing, I think 
in one of our episodes or maybe several in the past, we've mentioned pine tree chiefs. Yes. If you recall, if, if you're just joining us because you want to hear about the American Revolution, in one of our past episodes, we talk about uh, the Iroquois culture and their government and things like that. And we see that they have sachems, 50 sachems on their council. But for all intents and purposes, we'll just call them like their senators. And there's always 50. But you can add a special person on top of the 50 and make him into a pine tree chief. Theoretically, you could have more than 50, but it's only like a special election. And this person, Shenandoah, was one of those people. He was not appointed by the clan mothers of a specific nation. He was appointed by the council itself. So Shenandoah was a hugely renowned leader of the Oneida. He was born around 1710 to one of the prop Conestoga nations in Pennsylvania. Those are the remnant Susquehannocks. So that puts him roughly at about 67 years old when these events are taking place. And he's another one of these guys that lives for, I think he lives to be 110 or something like that. Just amazing the genetics that they have. If you don't die of European disease, a lot of these people just live forever. So think of all the stuff he's seen so far in his life. Anyway, as he grew up, he moved to New York and he became adopted by the Oneida. And he was an extremely close friend of William Kirkland. You remember who that is, right, Caleb? Yeah, that's the missionary that we mentioned in the past couple episodes that worked with the Oneida. One of the guys that was influential in getting the Oneida to stay neutral and then eventually side with the patriotic cause. So when Shenandoah hears that Washington's army's in trouble, he helps lead a, a Boy Scout food drive, I guess you could say, just like someone might do today. We're going to round up supplies for these these little boys down in Pennsylvania that are starving and don't have any shoes. Doesn't that sound like something that we do on our uh, Christmas time yep. to help so, the poor kids? So he goes door to door the longhouses with a bag and, and uh, people keep putting white corn in it. It's a little more organized than that. <laughs> Despite the fact that the Oneida have had a pretty bad year, they've had one of their towns sacked by Joseph Brandt, but the women of the Six Nations are the ones that plant all the fields. So even though the warriors are out helping the Americans, the women are able to gather and harvest huge amounts of corn. It's a very good harvest. And we know that usually they planted three times as much that they needed for the year in case there was ever a famine or war or an ally, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, needs a little extra food. But they didn't have just a little extra food, Andrew, because they end up sending a ton of corn down to Washington. In fact, they send over six hundred bushels of white corn and Andrew and I were doing some research trying to find out exactly how much you know what's a bushel of corn and if you look it up is it still the same today as it was back then so I'll give you a, a guesstimate we basically think it's about 50 pounds a bushel so 600 times 50 pounds equals a lot of stinking corn and then we were trying to figure out how the heck they were able to move this yeah, because Shenandoah, he, he gets together 40 warriors to transport this corn and take it down to George Washington. Yeah, so we were doing the math. That means each person would have to carry 14 <laughs> or 15 bushels themselves, which is just not possible. But we did find out that they did have a few horses. Not a lot, but enough. In the spring, after the hard winter, on April 25th, an Oneida man named Grasshopper, along with 40 other men, Many of them we've mentioned before. Hanieri's one of them, as well as Shenandoah, and some other people that we'll mention in a bit. But there's only one woman that comes along, a woman named Polly Cooper. They walk all the way from central New York to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Do you know how far that is, Caleb? It's over 300 miles. I Close. 240. 
I read somewhere it's 400 miles, well, too, though. So you got to remember there's probably rivers and hills oh, and okay. things like that, but I put it on Google Earth, and if you were to take the highway, it's 240 miles. Okay. But yeah, they probably had to walk a little bit more. The sachems and leaders of this uh, traveling relief mission tell the people, hey, this is going to be a long walk. We want you to treat all the colonists while we're on the road with care. Don't bother them. Don't steal. And don't take any alcohol from them. And they mostly listened. Their travel was pretty uneventful. A lot of the colonists, when they see a group of 50 Oneida show up, they're a little hesitant. Um, okay, you guys want to spend the night? But every stop they made, they developed new friendships. In fact, one house that they stop at, the woman walks out to them and starts greeting them in Mohawk. And they say, how do you speak Mohawk? She's like, oh, I grew up in New York outside the Mohawk area. Thank you so much for your help. You guys want anything to eat? And they were totally shocked and blessed. So after 20 days of walking, they arrived at Valley Forge on May 15th, 1778. And what they saw was a muddy sea in an island of cabin hovels with a horrible stench. But they were happy to be there. George Washington himself greets them eagerly and tells them they have free range of the camp. He tells his officers, don't bother these allies. If they want to go somewhere and check things out, let them visit wherever they want. Don't throw them out of any of your cabins. The only thing he told the leaders of both the Oneida and his officers was, don't give them any alcohol and don't sell them any alcohol. And that may sound really harsh, but there was a reason in that. Do we have to explain it, Caleb? People that are hooked on alcohol, you don't want to, even if you're trying to be nice. It's kind of an interesting thing because in our culture, you buy somebody a drink to show them friendship. But at the same time, if somebody whispers to you, oh, he's he's an alcoholic or his father was an alcoholic or his grandfather was an alcoholic, it all of a sudden becomes this thing where if you really want to be your friend, you don't put them in that situation where they're going to be tempted with a drink. Yes. And so Washington feels the same way. He's like, look. Let's not set them up for failure because people do stupid things when they get inebriated. Through their time there, the Americans don't sell the Oneida anything, and the Oneida abstain from any kind of alcohol. The first evening that they're there, Washington personally meets with every single Oneida person and thanks them. They all want to meet this uh, this great war chief. They've heard about Conaticarius, the town destroyer. And that night, he personally invites Hanieri to sit with him as his guest of honor at dinner. Now, Andrew... This is like a godsend to all these soldiers because they have basically been starving all winter and it's early spring now, so it's getting a little warmer, but they still don't really have any food yet. So when these bushels of corn show up, you know, I just picture people going up and, you know, putting the knife in the thing and start gorging themselves on it. And some of them do get a hold of some corn and start to eat it. Because we think of like the corn we eat today where it's in the can and you can just warm it up and eat it or sweet corn on the cob where you can just bite right into it. But this Indian white corn is quite different in the sense that this corn has to be processed. And uh, by processed, I mean it has to be cooked. You have to add like a chemical to it in order to get it to separate so that you can eat the starch. And so people started eating it. It would be almost like eating raw rice in huge quantities and it would expand and your body could not digest it. And it could actually uh, kill people. If or, you... or at worst, make a very uncomfortable next few days. So this brings us back to this woman, Polly Cooper. There was more to her coming than just the fact that she was a woman that wanted to come along. 
She was a notorious cook, Andrew. Yes, I've heard. So she came along not only to help transport all this corn, but she came with the sole intent to teach the Americans how to cook it. And she ended up staying with the army for a long time as a cook. In addition to showing the shoulders and wives how to make soup from the hulled corn and explaining to them that it's nutritious, she also taught them how to make cornbread loaves, and she would mix fruit and nuts in with it. Which sounds a lot better because I really don't care for cornbread. I've never really liked it that much. I've always liked it. But I would like it even more if it had fruit and nuts in it. And also it would be a lot more nutritious. You wouldn't be just getting your starch. You could get some protein and such in there too. Now, how much did uh, Polly Cooper charge for all of her services, Caleb? Well, I imagine since she just saved this army, she probably could have charged whatever she wanted. But when they offered to pay her, she refused any payment whatsoever. And a lot of them were trying to figure out how to pay her back. One day, the wives of the officers invited Polly to walk with them downtown. I can just see it. All the shops have their little things out in the windows, and they're walking around window shopping. And Polly commented on a black shawl that she saw on display, and she thought that it was the best thing she had seen all day. The interesting thing, Andrew, about this shawl, we don't really think of it today because we don't really wear shawls, but A black shawl would be like your morning outfit. It wouldn't be something that you would be wearing to the ball that night. This was a... This was the black robe that you'd wrap around yourself, and it most likely had a black veil that would cover your face. So I can picture some people kind of being like, well, Polly wants it, uh, but she probably was looking at it more for a practical aspect. Polly thought it was beautiful, and it, it most likely was because it was very expensive. When the ladies saw the price tag, they all kind of said to themselves, uh, yikes. So they all go back to their husbands and they say, um, you know, Polly, the, the woman that came that saved the army and brought all that food, she was admiring this nice black piece of cloth in the window down there. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You guys better buy it for her or else you're sleeping in the doghouse. So they went out, they purchased the thing, and Martha Washington personally gave it to Polly for her services to stay and cook and care as a nurse for the Continental Army. Now, here's the really cool thing, Andrew. This shawl still exists. Yeah, you can Google search images of it, and maybe we'll post one uh, once this episode goes up. The Nation of the Oneida, this is like one of their most uh, treasured keepsakes that they've had for hundreds of years. There's no time to relax, however, Caleb, because just a few days later on May 18th, the Oneida were directed to participate in a reconnaissance mission led by our cheeky little Marquis de Lafayette. And about 2,200 troops are going to go to an area called Barren Hill. So is he recovered from his wound? I guess. It's been a few months. Washington tells him, look, just go around, observe, check out, see what's going on with Philadelphia. But don't engage and don't get trapped. Lafayette sets up camp and two days later he finds himself almost getting trapped. May 20th, Howe's British forces come out of Philadelphia and they try to capture Lafayette and his army. And they're coming up from the south with the river to his back, facing west. And then they come around and they've cut him off to the east. So now his only chance to escape is by a small gap running north. Now he's got about 40 of these Oneida warriors with him. And so they run out saying, you guys get out of here and we're going to hold the British off. And so the Oneida warriors run ahead to the advancing British column and they ambush the British soldiers to do a delay to let Lafayette and his 2,200 troops get north to get up to the river where they can ford it and escape back to Valley Forge. That'd be kind of embarrassing. 
you're there with over 2,000 men. And then the 40 Indians are like, we'll take care of them. You guys get to safety. Uh, but I'm sure they appreciated it because it, it worked. Yes. And they were able to completely get back across the river. It's thought that six Oneida were killed during the engagement. And they're actually buried at St. Peter's Church in Barren Hill. And they've got a, a marker there that says six Indians gave their lives here in this battle. Lafayette maybe just lost three men during this whole thing. So the Oneida possibly prevented the whole contingent from being captured or at the very least huge casualties being inflicted upon them. Andrew, these are uh, pretty big influences that the Oneida in particular had on American history. But as most of you have noticed, you haven't read about this. And that's led a lot of people to say, eh, you're just, this is just apologists trying to add Native Americans to history because they feel bad. But there's actually a reason why we don't read a lot about this. And that's because when American history was being compiled, Andrew, in the 1830s, there was a lot going on at the time. Can you think of anything in particular? 1830 sounds like the era of Andrew Jackson. Yes, 1830s was when they were relocating all the Indian nations. And the American government at the time didn't want to give any fuel to the fire for people to sympathize with Native Americans. Therefore, when they were compiling American history, they left a lot of this stuff out intentionally. So now it's it's taken us a long time to get caught up and try to give it its proper place in history, but through lots of works of real scholars, unlike Andrew and I. But people have compiled this, and we can see things a lot better today than you could in the early 1800s, just because we can look at everything with a critical eye and just look at the facts. And before you think, well, it's also because the, the white men didn't write down anything that the Indians did for them. Well, if they didn't write this stuff down, we wouldn't have it at all. Yeah, there were people writing the things down that the Oneida and other Native Americans did for American history in the early 1800s, in the late 1700s, but it's just it's just the history books that it kind of got left out of. So Washington writes back to General Philip Schuyler in New York, and he says this, quote, The Oneidas and the Tuscaroras have a particular claim to attention and kindness for their perseverance and fidelity. He's writing here in this letter, thanking the Oneida for traveling down here, for assisting them, and he makes mention of how great warriors they were and helped him out in the battle. Shortly after this battle, the Oneida start to hear rumors that back home that their villages are threatened. So they beg leave of Washington and they let him know that they're going to be returning home. Because, as we're going to talk about in our next episode, there's going to be a lot more war and a lot more bloodshed in upstate New York. So out of this whole expedition, the Oneida suffered six men killed and two were captured by the British. One of the men killed in this uh, battle with Lafayette was a sachem named Thomas Sinovus. When they hear of his death, they're going to be very heartbroken. And when you said that six were killed in order to get Lafayette to escape, six out of 40 is a pretty high number. But saving 2,200 colonial forces, it's a small sacrifice for them, but to the Oneida, it's a great sacrifice. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next week, we will be heading back up north to see what that rascal Joseph Brandt has been doing this whole time with the Mohawk. Brandt is going to get a new nickname, Caleb. We won't give it away, though. We won't? Oh, okay, we can. What is it? They're going to start calling him Monster Brandt. Monster Brandt. You can decide whether it's an appropriate name or not after next week's episode. 
Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. Please remember to like us on Facebook. And people are constantly messaging me, Andrew, asking me, how the heck do they become members of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan? Pretty easy. And if you've listened to any of our episodes, you should know by now. But just go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, write a few kind words out to us that we will treasure for the rest of our lives, and we will put your username up on our website to join the honorary Wild Sweet Potato Clan. It's not a real clan, by the way. Oh, yeah, we had one person uh, tell us that they couldn't join the clan because they were already a member of the Wolf Clan or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they were a Seneca <laughs> Nation member. <laughs> it's just for fun, guys. You can be part of both clans. This is a, a podcast clan. For those of you that don't remember, very early on in our podcast, Andrew and I were uh, researching some extinct clans from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and one of them was the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, so we thought we'd bring it back. So that's why we ask for your reviews. Also, you may notice that Andrew and I do not put any annoying ads at the start, at the middle, or at the end of the show, and we do that because we saw uh, a real gap in history, and we figured if nobody else was going to fill it, we would take a whack at it. So we're not professional historians, so uh, we're not using that as an excuse, but we do this because we love it. So all we ask from you is an iTunes review, and we will take that as payment enough. So we thank you, every single one, people who are descendants of colonists, people that are members of the First Nations, and people that are listening all over the world. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye, everybody.